You have arrived. Welcome to the Aspie World. Here's where we talk about anything and everything ASD in an upbeat and informative way. And now, here's your man on the spectrum, your autism ambassador, Daniel Morgan Jones. Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome back to another live podcast interview. I know I say live, but this is kind of like pre-recorded, but it's completely live. It's unedited. So um, I haven't done one of these in a while because everyone's been sick. I mean, I've been sick with COVID. My assistant's been sick with COVID. Like, it's been crazy. So Happy New Year and all that jazz. Um, but we're back with another episode. And uh, yeah, this guest is quite an interesting guest. We've been talking a little bit before pushing record, and I'm very excited to to dive into the brain of... Um, our guest today. So, um, Ansha, do you want to kind of uh, introduce yourself and tell us who you are? Sure, sure. Uh, my name is Anshar Serafim. Um, I teach uh, communication, uh, applied behavioral psychology, persuasive psychology, um, applied cognitive neuroscience, and um, psychosocial dynamics to C-suites, entrepreneurs, executives, salespeople. And I develop those skills uh, basically to cope and kind of grow from, uh, from being basically 75% nonverbal at 11. Um, I'm definitely high functioning, but I know there's that delineation between high functioning and, and Asperger's. I, I definitely had a big facility with language early on, but I think one of the reasons that I kind of pulled back a little bit was one of my early special interests was words. Mm-hmm. And so I got into, you know, I read a dictionary and was reading encyclopedias and was devouring all that stuff. And um, I didn't realize it at the time, you know, as a kid, but you can really other yourself with language with other people. So my first attempts at, you know, trying to learn how to talk to people just kind of went out the window and had a lot of uh, challenges and stuff growing up. Didn't have a real friend, you know, to speak of that I, I could interact with on a normal basis other than like sharing an activity or something like that until I was almost 25. Um, but I, I kind of came from that age before, that generation before uh, we started kind of passing out, you know, diagnoses to kids. I, I think the median age for diagnosis now is like four years old. And, That's right, yeah. you know, I was 19. So, I mean, as an adult, I had to come across this, all this new information on, on joining the military and you know, access to the medical care and stuff. Then it was then I really found out there was a name for what was going on with me. Yeah. And then the next five years after that, we're just trying to figure it out. And, um, you know, I, I was involved in information technology and all of that for like 15, 16 years. I thought that was gonna, what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. And then this journey of having to reprogram myself, basically, um, led me to so much, you know, conversational and, and personality and, and psychosocial sapience that I end up doing it for a living, which I find really ironic. <laughs> so, yeah, it's fascinating, really. And I have a question, because you said you were 70, 70 or 75% nonverbal, right, up until you were like age 11. Mm-hmm. How did, you know, what what were you thinking was going on? Like, what, what did your parents think? What did you think? Like, do you think, oh my goodness, like, what is wrong with me? Or were you kind of like, you know, because you weren't diagnosed until later on. So how, yeah, how did that happen? I grew up in a house with two music teachers. And so it was really hard for me. I was always trying to hide from the noise, you know? I was, um, it, even if you love music, you know, listening to a six-year-old try to learn how to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on a violin can be Painful. a bad sensory experience. And that's without SPD. So, yeah. you know, um, I, I had so much trouble connecting. And um, I remember when I was a kid, um, I had this desire to like have friends and connect and, and to be intimate with the other kids, but I couldn't, I didn't know what that was supposed to look like or how I was supposed to get there. And because I had so much trouble talking to people mm. uh, at one point, I think I was in like fourth grade or third grade. And I was chasing the other kids around the playground, trying to kiss them. Cause I mean, that was the closest approximation that I could come to in, in my brain with like play and interaction and intimacy and yeah. 
And I just spent the rest of my time alone. So I was a very solitary kid. And um, you would have thought I would have developed a lot of social skills having 40 families a week come with music lessons and all of that. But all I ever really wanted was for them to get out of my space. I'd hide yeah. with a flashlight yeah. and read a book or something. And uh, I, I never knew where any of those proclivities came from. And it was only when I got that diagnosis as an adult and then had to like look backward over yeah. all of my challenges. And I, you know, they gave me the option at that point, you know, they said some people on the spectrum can stay in, some people you know, we're gonna give you the choice. And I almost stayed in, but um, I had a friend come up to me and said, well, you know, this is all new information to you. And what if, you know, some of the stuff that you've been talking about, the hyper-focus or you know, this or that, or difficulty transitioning tasks, or what if that ends up making, making you make a mistake in the military and you end up hurting someone or taking someone's life or you can be able to live with that? And uh, I thought long and hard about it. And, you know, I, I decided, okay, well, I probably need to work on myself now. And that was hard for me because, you know, as a, as a kid who went all the way through high school and everything and, and got overwhelmed by the prospect of like driving, I, mean, I didn't get my driver's license until I was 37. Mm. So the, the idea of joining the military and getting to go into a different system and, and have a different direction and cultivate and direct that, that was a big, I guess, opportunity. I felt like it was a lifeline for me, mm. which is why I wanted it. And then to find out that maybe I shouldn't be doing it in the first place, it, it really kind of affected me emotionally. Kicking the knuckers, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in, in terms of like, here's a question, you know, like, um, and I can totally relate to being quite isolated as a child um, myself when I was in uh, primary school or preschool. Um, I was, you know, I didn't play with the other kids. I didn't go outside with, in, the, in the playground with the other kids. I actually stayed indoors um, and I was learning things on. Uh, and I talk about this quite in depth in my book that's coming out this year. Mm. Um, and uh, and I talk about like how I used to stay in, in, in researching Carter. You know, remember the encyclopedia? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm old enough that I had like a Compton's encyclopedia and a science how the way things work with the encyclopedia my, that my grandmother got for me with like 30 <laughs> volumes. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. We had a few of them, but a lot of them are missing. Like I didn't have a, you know, when I was like, when I was 11 years old, I was homeless. So like, um, you know, but basically we didn't have a lot of those things, but in school we had in Carter. And so I used to kind of, um, yeah, just kind of digest that stuff because you didn't have any books growing up, which is annoying. But, um, but yeah, but the question I have is what, for me, I didn't feel like I was alone because I enjoyed that time on my own learning those things. I didn't feel like, oh, I'm missing out on, on friendships. I'm missing out on playing with the other kids in the, in the yard. How did you How did you feel about that? Was it Was it a similar experience, or were you? Um, upset I think you... until until I got to the point where I started to be like romantically attracted to like someone of the opposite sex, or felt that kind of teenage need to to like be able to like get into social groups and stuff. I was very content being on my own and um you know it didn't strike me as weird that i would go all the way to the you know the corner of the gymnasium or go sit by myself in a classroom to have lunch because mm. for me that was just it was just too much stimulation that was it was nice and quiet i didn't have to worry about you know people asking me uncomfortable questions and um the other kids were really mean to me because i was different you know and kids are always trying on different social roles when they're younger uh, i couple bullies you know would follow me home on the uh on the bus from school and like throw rotten fruit at me and stuff like bad stuff you know just yeah, you jerks everywhere. and then um you know i had my own uh, experience of being homeless after i got out of the military and had all that struggle with trying to make that better and um at first i failed terribly and when i did you know i just i just kind of wandered for i was like 11 months in one of the coldest cities in the united states it was really 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 rough but it, it taught me a lot about myself and it also taught me about um, how underdiagnosed, you know, a lot of medical conditions and stuff are in the indigent population. 
yeah. um, just because, you know, they don't get that medical care and stuff. And a lot of that homelessness and or houselessness sometimes is perpetuated by, um, by mental illness or you know, developmental diseases or, and, and that was really enlightening too. I think, um, feeling alone in the process of, of having ASD and not having other people that I could connect with or a support group or, you know, and just having to kind of go it on my own. I didn't feel that sense of community that I think people in today's generation do. And, and that generational difference of what it's like to have, a, you know, a disability 20 years ago versus now. Oh, 100%. So different. Yeah. I mean, I was saying this, um, I was briefing um, the European Parliament um, about, um, uh this is back in 2020 and i had to do it over zoom because like the lockdown was about to was right. imminent and what i did they invited me over there to like uh to to uh to france and i was like dude i'm not going there and, that, and they were like yeah yeah we're fine and i was like no way and then like you know a month later lockdown happened but um but yeah so i briefed them on how um autistic people uh have like less access to things because it's all about employment right and i said like imagine you're an employer you know, this day and age, you didn't make accommodations for someone who was a wheelchair user, that kind of disability. You'd have like lawsuits coming out your ass. But if you go back to like the 1930s, I mean, it'd be your own fault if you're a wheelchair user, right? So it'd be like, get on with it, man. It's not my problem. Find something else to do. So, but that's where I feel that autism or neurodiversity is now, where like it's a disability that's not accommodated because it's not the topic of everyone's mind. They're just like, oh, whatever. But we need legal um, uh, statutes in place to help kind of like for employment and public spaces and public services have accessibility for autism. Right. And that's exactly well, and what I mean by a generation thing. There's issues there too. I think, you know, and it's not just with awareness and stuff like that. I got into like the project of designing a 501 C3 or a nonprofit here in the States. And I was in the middle of doing that with a friend um, just before COVID hit. And yeah. we were coming up with a, uh, like a computer database distribution system along with ride sharing with drivers with proper training for, for disability services who also know how to like avoid sensory, you know, issues with, uh, with driving around and, you know, have a, have a tablet with a call button to be able to call a, you know, call an emergency contact, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Because you have a whole bunch of people, you know, with ASD who under the age of 25 don't have the ability to even be employable. No, exactly. One of the things that was really interesting about 2020 is it showed so many companies that, they don't need to necessarily have their employees in the workplace and have their employees at home. Yeah. And um, so that, that was one part of it, I think for me, but I think another, and this is true, not just with ASD, but also, you know, with a lot of other um, states of neurodivergence, but also nonlinear thought, you know, nonlinear thinking is I think something that all of us have to approach too, you know, because mm -hmm. we're definitely in that group and that Venn diagram of, you know, not necessarily thinking in a straight line um, that when you think and process things differently, um, people don't understand because you were talking about that example of a wheelchair when someone has a has a symptom of a disability that's visible then people will make mental accommodations or space for that person you don't get angry at your friend who's in a wheelchair for not helping you move but right. when you have a friend who has let's say ADHD or you have a friend who's you know has ASD and they're, they're hyper focused or they, they accidentally have a one-sided conversation or, or change mm -hmm. they try to emotionally reciprocate by talking about themselves or you know, those challenges, that, that same behavior in a neurotypical person would be them being a jerk. And yeah, so I had that, that experience of everyone thinking that I was being a jerk and getting treated that way and not understanding why. And yeah. uh, when I went and started working in the corporate, I used to, uh, to go do the training for the engagement ring sales in the north, uh, northwestern United States. Oh, cool. 
was teaching like emotional dynamics and that kind of thing. And um, that whole process really showed me how much we need to grow to be able to have neurodiversity in the workplace, how, what kinds of things need to be different. You know, as a store manager with that company, largest retail jewelry and jeweler in the United States, I went to a manager's meeting with 1600 managers Holy at smokes. the store being just pipelined into these, these tiny hallways, into these crowded rooms with all this noise. And it was hell. And I had to take earplugs, ear protection, and, and vision, you know, field of vision restricting glasses. And nobody understood why it was so uncomfortable. And uh, I think that that awareness of not only the difference between, you know, uh, uh, symptoms and character traits, but also people taking behavior as communication, because when behavior is a symptom of something, yeah. it's not communication, it's just a symptom. Yeah. And, uh, that can hitch people up in relationships and neurodivergent relationships and stuff too. And that's one of the things I talk about when I talk to people. Yeah. I think like, you know, that, that is a big issue, especially with like relationships. And I think it takes like a certain type of uh, neurotypical person to really get uh, an autistic person, especially when you're entering into like, you know, a romantic relationship or whatever. Um, and, and it's really, it really is interesting because like nobody sees that struggle and they all think you're like a narcissistic asshole. Um, and I get that all the time. Like you're a narcissistic or you're, you're, you know, you're an egotistical prick or whatever. I'm like, geez, but, but I'm not, you know, like I'm not at all. And one of the biggest things is um, people thinking that I'm really aggressively angry or I have anger management issues when I don't like, I really, I'm really calm. It's just that I have a fear issue, you know, a fear based kind of response to things. And I think that's probably those misunderstandings are probably the biggest issues we have between the autistic world and the non-autistic world, like bridging that some gap. Of it, some of it is self-imposed though through masking. And I will say that because yeah. the, the first thing that I learned, you know, was to try to fit in. And mm. um, the problem with that is that when you behave like a neurotypical person and you're putting, you know, spending all that energy to be able to put up that facade, the reward for all of that effort is that when you do finally make a mistake, that mistake is taken in the worst context possible. Whereas if you yeah. shared your challenges positively at the beginning, and I think that's, that's what's hard. It's hard right now for a lot of people to learn how to self-advocate because they don't know what it looks or sounds like. And so it's abstract and it's, it's just another source of anxiety and social fear. Yeah, something else to worry about, right? And I, that's the thing about masking. Like it could be used as a survival technique as well. Um, which is kind of like humans instinctively do that, right? But with autistic individuals or neurodiverse individuals, they will do that masking because they're trying to survive a, I, I call it swimming with sharks in my book. I, I talk about this quite a lot. And it's like, how do you fit in with the sharks? We act like a shark. But then the problem you've got with masking is that, you know, sharks are sharks and fish are fish, right? And if you're a fish trying to act like a shark, you'll only go so much, you know, you can pretend to be a shark, but then when the sharks start behaving like sharks, you're kind of like, uh, okay, I don't have razor sharp teeth. So I'm like in the depth here. Like, and so it's really interesting. It can get you into all kinds of trouble, um, metaphorically speaking, as well as literally speaking. And so um, I think, you know, on a whole masking can be something that can be used as a survival technique in any situation with anybody, but also we have to be very aware of that. If we're going to create a, a mask or an imitation, then we should be able to understand the full extent. Are we able to actually walk this walk? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm not a clinician, so I mean, my, my psychological opinions are based on, you know, a decade and a half of, of being super involved in that, not from seeing patients or anything like that. But I will say that the process of suffering through social anxiety, being socially ostracized, going through the trauma of being misunderstood, mislabeled, um, 
othered by people mm-hmm. that sometimes you can have a PTSD reaction to that too, that you can literally develop post-traumatic stress from the stress of being socially excluded and, and made to feel emotionally isolated. And I think that one of the things that is missing from disability education is being able to self-assess, to recognize if you have you know, involuntary emotional responses or avoidance of particular situations or places or negative changes in your belief systems or yeah. hyper arousal, being hypervigilant um, and recognize that that means that you've been traumatized because no matter, I can speak you know, clearly as a person with 17 years of experience in psychology, if I have trauma, I have to talk to somebody else. I can't use what I know to help myself because you can't reframe cognitive belief systems using your own internal, uh, internal rubric. It doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, and it kind of like, you know, the whole mental health aspect of it is something like, like an example, like you were saying, knowing like self-advocation or, or knowing self kind of like, Oh, I, I need to remember to do this. Um, you know, I, I realized that's a symptom of something else. And for me, one of the biggest ones is, um, is, uh, OCD, right? Like, I don't even know that something's an OCD until I kind of like, it catches me off guard or I'm like, I'm really frustrated that I really just want to leave the house. And then you're like, oh shit, like this is a whole OCD routine that's just taken hold of my life. And so I think people learning more about themselves, and I think it starts with a diagnosis. So a diagnosis, but then learning more about themselves and learning how to understand and and, uh, and identify. You know, people say, why do you do so many videos on identifying autism traits? I'm like, because people don't even know. You know, people don't know this is like a trait or people don't know like toe walking is a trait or people don't know that like, you know, OCD is a, it would be presented like this. And I think that's important, and 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 you're absolutely right, you know. And, uh, and I'm not a clinician either. I mean, I I do have I do have a background in, in psychotherapy, um, for counselling on a very low grade. But in terms of um the other stuff, it's kind of like through lived experience, right? Like, and that's how I know, just like and, you. And that can be mis misinformed too, you know. Uh, I think one of the most eye opening books that I ever read when I finally made this decision to try to come out of my shell and learn you know, learn micro expressions, learn how to talk to people, learn, you know, learn appropriateness, understand sarcasm, um, all of these things that were not innate to me, um, was reading a book by Carl Sagan uh, called The Dragons of Eden. And yeah. he talks about the, the evolutionary precepts, the biological precepts that, that caused the formation of human consciousness. And sometimes we forget that there's millions of years of evolutionary process that's driving behind some of the basic mechanisms that make up the brain. Mm-hmm. And one of them is just with, with the hippocampus, with, with memory recording, when your cortisol and adrenaline levels and stuff spike and you have a negative experience, your brain goes into heavy recording mode. It's like a high speed camp. That's why time seems to slow down. Yeah, that's and right. there's so much more emotional primacy that's placed on negative experiences that yeah. um, I think that psychological awareness, that self-awareness that, your experience traveling through life with the set of biological systems that you're given can inherently um, distort your perception and that what you see as truth is actually a funhouse mirror. And being able to have the self-awareness to go through that process and to be able to to verify and change belief systems, I think that's huge. I think it's part of self-development, whether you have a disability or not. 
Definitely. And you know, what's really interesting. You just reminded me of something really like messed up that I came across. I was doing some research into this kind of thing, whole, you know, like, you know, you remember everything that happens to you and it's negative, you know, like it was like, you don't remember very fine details of negative um, or unhappy experiences uh, because like everything slows down and your mind just starts recording everything in great detail because you're trying to figure out a way out of that mess, right? Your body is kind of going like, right, how do I get myself away from pain towards pleasure? Like, how do I do this? Um, and when you think, and this is the interesting, this is the part that really is fascinating. When you go to recall, when you do a, a, a stimulation recall when you, or, or a memory recall, it's like recall time where, you know, you've been in negative experience. You're like, oh yeah. And you'll, you'll see it through your own eyes, you know, in the memory. You'll be like, yeah, I was sitting there and somebody came over and punched me in the face and you're like, look this way. And you can see it as you looking through your own eyes through the memory bank. But if you go, Recall a time when you when a really happy time or a very pleasant time, you'll see yourself in a third person. You'll be it'll be like watching a movie of yourself doing those things. You don't necessarily know how you were feeling. And yeah, uh, you don't know how you yeah, you don't know how you're feeling, but you just you'll see the image rather than live the image. You know what I mean? And that warps the the cognitive process of building um, yeah. you know, cognitive systems and having you know firmly held beliefs uh, about the way that the world works, and in much the same way that the stomach was evolved to understand how much volume of food was in it, not how many exactly. calories you have. As food technology moves on, you yeah, can put more stomach. calories into the same stomach, and now we have an obesity problem. It's yeah. the same problem with the brain. You know, if, if you're predisposed to lay awake at four o'clock in the morning, remembering that job interview from 15 years ago, <laughs> and that's what you remember, and the positivity is lost, then it, it changes your narrative. And speaking personally, because I have, you know, a kind of a quasi-autobiographical memory, yeah. Um, the the recording the frames of recording in the different times of my life those frames have been rolling way way faster during the negative mm -hmm. and it did warp my narrative and I, I think that we get um, especially if you have Asperger's and you're more more of an NT type you're more logical um, we can get into that thing of kind of discounting or dismissing those those happy go lucky bongo drunk people who want to celebrate all these happy experiences but um, you know, psychologists disagree, but it's somewhere between five and 25 times more times that you have to have a positive experience for it to have the same weight on you as a negative experience. And that means everyone's funhouse mirrors are warped. Yeah, yeah 100% dude. Um, yeah, but, but I know exactly what you mean. I'm, I'm a INTJ. Um, mm -hmm. uh, INTJ, yeah. Okay. yeah. So it's, it's really funny you should say that because like it's it's I've noticed that most people who have a similar diagnosis to us on like I'm guessing you've got a high IQ as well right yeah. unfortunately yeah yeah so like we we all categorize in the INTJ kind of like scene. and it's really funny because we all have the same well very similar interests in anthropology and and cognitive psychology and and evolution. complex systems are interesting to us yeah and I think that's that's super interesting and I went and you know what I think my my kind of take on this why why are complex I love algorithms right I love it and I of course I was, and I, I was like I was writing one out literally yesterday because I'm like people they make sense right and do you know what it is do you know what it is and this is the crazy thing it's because we like to solve problems and every like complex systems are problems I love systems I love any type of system like and it's because it's a problem because I how I can relate. make it more efficient right <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. like, how can you make a system work smoother? Like, I always want to try to optimize shit. Like, I'm always trying to optimize stuff. Yeah. There no, you go, I, dude. I, there I you totally, go. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I love it. And like, hey, another one of my friends is obsessed with Rubik's Cubes, and she's on the spectrum as well. Yeah. And it's, it's, I approach a lot of my interests exactly the same way systemizing, taking it apart, realizing exactly how it works, and then moving on to the next thing. Exactly, and, uh, dude. I love that.
Yeah. I like, uh, I studied professional magic for a while. I actually got to like do professional magic for a while. And I studied magic too. The better I got at it, the less I wanted to do it because then the more bigger crowd I can only, you know, if I'm at a Thanksgiving dinner, I could show a magic trick. Otherwise I can't. Do you know what's really funny about magic is because I was so fascinated about, I wonder how these things work. Again, it was a complex system or what I perceived to be complex, but in actual fact, it was just sleight of hand, which is very uncomplex. And it kind of almost made me sad when I, when I was learning all these tricks, um, I was like, Oh, this isn't complex at all. And it kind of like, it was almost detrimental because I enjoyed. It was like meeting the man behind the curtain. The yeah, and it can, yeah. And I guess, Everybody would have that kind of experience when they realize how magic tricks done. They go, oh, okay, curtains down. But for autistic individuals, I think like you feel like, oh, you know, it's like a blow to the chest, like shit, because you take it as literal. Like I see it very literal, and then I see the 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 real version, and that's also literal. And I'm like, oh, shit, like that's it, it's severed between two parts, and I'm like, oh, you know, it's kind of it's weird, man. It like rocked my whole world. Um, so yeah, I. I, I I do love magic. I love seeing tricks being performed, but I'd rather just not know how they were done now because it just depresses me. <laughs> you know, I think that's kind of the way I originally approached uh, human beings with relationships. Once I started to figure out personality dynamics, plans, you know, points of behavior, uh, do dopamine routed programming and yeah. uh, cognitive systems and all of that, then unless someone's self-aware, and that's a rare trait, yeah. You know, they have to they have to earn that authenticity of knowing where their actions, their reactions, their antecedents, all where it all comes from. Yeah. And then being able to like make authentic decisions about the kind of person that they want to be. And so many people out there are just reacting. And yeah. for them, when I figure out someone who only knows how to react in their life, it's kind of like figuring out the trick to a magic trick. It's kind of disappointing. Because yeah. it's like, okay you're controlled by your reactions you know your behavior is predicted by what goes into that system not the choices and the changes in belief and stuff that you make because that's not something that's important to you and i have yeah. to accept that that's that is one way to live life that can make some people happy yeah it's crazy i always i always call it the zombie nation like i i feel like and it's true because like you feel kind of like it's not saying that like i'm higher than everybody but i feel like i float above people i'm like guys it's like i'm dealing with toddlers the whole time when i'm talking to people i'm like and i, and I don't mean in disrespect for you i'm like dude how dumb can you be like you know like simple things i'm like god you know like somebody got like people are like and this is one thing that really really fascinates people are like oh I, oh I go to work all day and i come home and I'm really, I'm still broke, you know, I'm working like, you know, 25 hours a day, you know, and I'm like, okay, dude, but there's a very simple logical explanation for this, right? You know, you're working and there's a finite amount of time and you're exchanging time for money. So you've got a finite amount of money you're going to be able to accumulate. But if you can sell something that is, you know, you do it once and sell it multiple times and it's infinite, right? But you're trading time. Well, yeah. Replicability and scale, or yeah. instead of doing earned income, you know, you, you do it, you go with a different scale. Yeah. yeah yeah and that's the thing like i'm like and i said somebody the other day i was in a, I was in a uh, chippy in the uk we have loads of those and then um, somebody was like this girl was like oh the chippy's closing i said what are you gonna do she's like oh i got another job as a uh, uh like a professional kind of um but bouncer they call them in the uk but it's like basically a security guy and i said well why don't you just teach make a video teaching people how to actually cook chips like a chippy and then sell that for 40 bucks you know, and then just sell it a thousand times and you, you'd be laughing your way to the bank, you know, just put it on Facebook, put a couple of dollars on an ad and, and sell it. People want to know how to make chips at home, right? And she was like, you just, just didn't get it, you know? I'm like, dude, what the, f like, that's the first thing I do. 
And this isn't just a neurodivergent thing either, because I'm, I'm in this really cool group called the Octopus Movement, and uh, it's a grouping of nonlinear thinkers, you know. Um, Ooh, nice. And it's such a cool group because we all relate to the way that other people are mystified by the way that we solve problems, and that <laughs> we enjoy deconstructing, playing with systems, and putting them back oh, together. So love um, we got kind of like a... Uh, uh, a project right now, it's actually going to be going live this next month uh, called Pick, Pick My um, My Nonlinear Brain. <laughs> you can talk about, you know, go to the site and find whatever topics um, that you're interested in getting different perspectives on. And then the system will hook you up with a, a nonlinear thinker who's in that sphere so that you can try deconstructing some ideas and stuff. Dude, that's fire. I want in on this group. You know, yeah. I'll probably invite if you're interested. Yeah, 100%, dude. One of the interesting things you said, Dan, is about problems. Um, and, and people say to me, like, Dan, how can you, how can you, because I don't see problems as problems, right? Problems are not something that worries me. Problems are things that excite me. And they're like, dude, how, why is it, why are you not scared of problems? Because I'm like, there's no such thing really as a problem because all you have is a potential towards a solution. And that potential is what excites me. Because if you already, if you know that something is a problem, then you already know that there is an answer to that problem, right? Otherwise it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> you know, there this has like to sales. be. When I teach sales, yeah. I say you should get yeah. excited about their objection because an objection <laughs> is a buying signal. It yeah. There's only a couple of things standing in their way to taking action. hundred percent. And you have to figure out how to knock that domino down for them, right? Yeah. Solve that variable, but also be able to maintain a positive experience through relationships, stay in touch with their needs so that you're actually servicing them and not taking from them, exactly. cultivate a future relationship, be able to scale the sale, blah, 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 yeah. blah. You can't do any of that until you connect to that part of them um, and that understanding. And I, it just, there's a disconnect with people, but I will say this from studying psychology, that when you think of like the, the standard bell, uh, bell curve distribution of intellect, and you have that 95 to 105 range in the middle there. And then you go to the outliers, you know, those 15% on either side. Yeah. You know, that means that a little under one in seven people has an IQ under 85. And I, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs forget that sometimes those are the people who need their goods or services the most. Yeah, because they're at a disadvantage, right? Their message to be palatable to that. Yeah, yeah. The other time that we remember is sometimes when we're on the road. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you know, and, and I think that being able to like explain and, and compartmentalize different ideas and break them down in different ways and solve problems in different ways, because sometimes solving problems in different ways presents different roadblocks and challenges than solving them in a different way. And the specific but, circumstances of a situation can sometimes mean that that path is, is clearly easier. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of like, you know, that Facebook has this, uh, has a, a motto of the people who work in Facebook, they say fail and fail hard because when you fail and you fail hard, you go, shit, that didn't work. So we're going to do something else. You need to fail and order to know that that's not going to fucking work. There's nothing wrong with failure. Fail yeah, awkward. Fail yeah, constantly because you go, okay, shit, that didn't work. I need to, I need to optimize and spin. Um, and like, Just honestly, don't fail the same way each time. And that means every time you found a way it didn't it's work different. Yeah. Cause okay. this is what annoys me. We've got like three minutes left. But I'm going to say this really quickly. And I'm going to ask you a few details, how people can find you, but there's a, there's a show um, on like Cake Masters or something, right, on um, on Netflix. And they were, they were like, there's different people from different skills. And this girl was baking a cake yesterday and she wanted a baby reveal on it. And she has to cut the cake and says baby inside it. She cooked five cakes the exact same way and each one of them failed. So the ones she presented, she cooked it the same fucking way. I was like, oh my God, you did five control tests, the same thing. After two tests, I was like, okay, this failed. This does not work. You know, once, twice, okay, five times, it's never going to work. Make it, when people don't, people just stick at it because they, they don't realize that that's a thing. That's never going to work. Just move on, do something else. It's crazy, dude. 
it's, it's about finding your passion. I think if you find your passion, then you will find different ways around it in order to make it work. But if you're just bashing your head against the wall then yeah, that's, yeah, that's you're just going to, you're going to get a headache <laughs> every time. Okay. So, um, Andre, please tell me, you know, on my audience, how they can get in touch with you, how they can follow you online. If they're interested in checking out more about the you. The thing that I can do is I have a, an electronic business card and I can just give you that link and it has all Perfect. of my interviews about autism, neurodivergent relationships, interpersonal dynamics, communication, cognitive neuroscience, marketing, all that stuff. Um, but if you, if you're looking for more instant gratification, you can, just search my name on YouTube. I do have uh, lots of interview content that I've done with other entrepreneurs and stuff like that. Yeah, and then, uh, you can reach me via email. It's just my first name and my last name with a period in the middle at gmail.com. Perfect. Awesome. I'll link all these details down below uh, and, and the links and everything. Uh, and uh, it's just been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure that people are going to learn a lot out of it. I'm sure I've got a lot out of it, basically, because it's nice to, you know, I never have the ability to talk to somebody on the same or similar intellectual level as I am. I will tell you, um, I did some really cool interviews with a guy named Jason Croft, and that'll be one, okay. one of the stuff that comes up on a YouTube search. And I talk about how to put in new systems of behavior how to change the way, uh, understand the way that dopamine interacts with, you know, pro self-programming behavior and yeah. changing cognitive systems. And that was basically the methodology that I used to be able to make these changes, learn to control the tone of my voice and handle social situations and all that. So if you're curious about yeah. how I went from 75% nonverbal to what I do now, yeah. that is literally the process that I talk about in that. And that took two hours to explain with him. So I can at least cool. mention it here and maybe it'll help someone. Definitely. I will link that in this video uh, on YouTube so people can find that. But um, Anshu, thank you so much for being a guest. It's been absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure everyone listening and watching is going to be like blown away with what we've just discussed. Um, thank you so much, dude. And uh, stay in touch. It'd be good to kind of like maybe do another one or hang out or something. Or do. Uh, yeah, I'll send you the uh, the Octopus Movement invite. That's a Facebook group is the face that I'll send for that. And then uh, if we get any interest from the video and people want to go into some of the topics I can discuss and a little bit more you know, neurophysiology and stuff, I love yeah. that. Yeah, dude. Me too, dude. I love it. Um, okay. Uh, peace out, dude. Thank you so much for, for being here. And I will talk to you soon. Make sure you email me those uh, those links and stuff. I will. I'll do it right, right. now. Peace out, man. Bye. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, please share this with anybody and everyone who you think can get some benefit from it. And also, I know a bunch of you guys who haven't already subscribed to this podcast, but listen, so please go over and subscribe to it now so you don't miss an episode. Also, if you want to hit me up on Twitter, it's at the Aspie World, the T-H-E, Aspie, A-S-P-I-E, and then World, W-O-R-L-D, so the Aspie World. All right, guys, thanks.